Let's turn, please, to Colossians chapter 2. We continue today in our journey through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. This letter is dense. Every bite that we take, every portion that is ours each Sunday as we work through it is precious and rich and demands our attention. We come to God's Word today because it is authoritative. We come to it today because it is sufficient both for life eternal and life in the here and now. And so I hope that you will come now with anticipation that through God's Spirit, He will open His Word to us and accomplish those things in our hearts and minds that we need. We're going to talk today about death to legalism. Probably is important at the beginning that we define what we mean by legalism. It is one of those terms that we use relatively frequently in religious circles, but we don't always know what we mean by it. Sometimes we use it sort of loosely and uncarefully to just mean somebody who's really serious about their faith. Those of us who believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, who believe that there is one true God and that through the Lord Jesus Christ we alone have access to God, there are many in our world today, particularly in the West, who would consider us legalists because we're, we're zealous for the truths of Scripture. That's not what I mean by legalism today. Today what we mean by legalism is something more like this that through effort, through keeping laws, either biblical laws or man-made laws to accompany biblical laws, that we can earn favor with God, either eternally, like justification, the Christian doctrine that God declares us righteous. How is one justified? How is one made eternally right with God? How is a sinner reconciled to God? Pure, high-level legalism would say that perhaps Jesus is important in that equation, but you have to add to that observance of particular laws, either biblical or man-made. That's like extreme high-level legalism. And if you were to do any religious studies in the course of Western history as Christianity has spread over the past couple of millennia, you will find plenty of faith traditions that exist this day, that are even meeting here in our community this morning, that are high-level legalists, that believe that Jesus is perhaps important or essential to reconciliation with God, to justification, but He is not sufficient, that you must add to Christ. That's high-level legalism, and it's patently unbiblical and diabolically dangerous. There is low-level legalism, however, that even those of us who believe that Jesus is our sufficient means of justification, that through faith in Him, God declares us righteous, reconciles us to Himself, accepts us in the Beloved. Low-level legalism would hold to something like the following. I know that I have been justified, I have been accepted, or reconciled to God, but to keep God happy with me, 
to appease him, then I must perform these certain things, and then therefore God will love me. Whether we are talking about high-level legalism, justification-type legalism, or low-level legalism that God only smiles upon us when we cross all our T's and dot all of our I's, not just the biblical ones, but all the other ones that people have made up to keep up appearances, that only then will God be pleased with me. Only then will I receive His smile. Both these forms, both high-level and low-level legalism, are dangerous. What Paul proclaims here in Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 23, is that those of us who have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection, we have been talking about this throughout the letter thus far, that those of us who have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection, that legalism has been put to death. And Paul reminds the Colossian church and us today that we must continue to put this to death lest we fall into the trap of believing that somehow we can do something to contribute to our eternal, our present salvation. And so we come back to this important endeavor, which is, how am I made right with God, and how may I relate to Him on an ongoing basis? And the answer as always, is Christ. So here's the big contextual idea for our verses today. This is a partial sentence because the rest of our outline today will finish the sentence. We have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Therefore, and I'll give you the therefore in two stages in just a moment. We have been united to Christ in His death and and resurrection. Back in chapter 1, we were reminded that through Christ we've been transferred to the kingdom of God. Here in chapter 2, Paul reminds us that in verse 11, we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him, verse 12, in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. We have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. His righteousness is credited to us. Next week, as we get into chapter 3, Paul will famously say, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So what is the context for our verses today? The context is that we, who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been united to Him in death and resurrection. But so what? Well, let's finish, or at least begin to finish this sentence. We have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Therefore, first of all today in verses 20 through 22, we must not give in to the tempting lure of legalism. 
know a number of you have, uh, here in our church are fishermen or fisherwomen, fisher people. I have to be politically correct, right? Fisher people. And you know what to use on different kinds of fish, right? Walleye and pike and smallmouth and largemouth bass and catfish and whatever. You have to choose the right kind of lure. For some, it's live bait. For others, it's different kinds of artificial bait. And you have to know how to choose each one very carefully. I have a dream that one day when my hair gets a little bit grayer and perhaps I partially retire or whatever, that I will have a fishing cabin somewhere on a river in Montana. I won't spend all my time there and just fish because that wouldn't please Jesus, but at least maybe like a couple of months a year I could go fish. And I'm super intrigued by fly fishing. I've never done it. It seems very romantic to me. Um, Whenever I go to like Orvis or Filson and see like $300 guide sweaters, I think my life would be much more complete if I had such a sweater. And I had like a $9,000 rod from Orvis made out of like bamboo and the tears of a baby seal. I don't know. (laughs) But someday I envision I will be out in some river that I can go up to like waist deep. This is largely drawn from vacations and movies I've watched. And I will have a hat and like a vest and I'll have different flies on it. And I watch movies and documentaries on such things and for every different kind of, of trout at different seasons, you have to choose exactly the right kind of fly. And when you go to fish in these areas, if you don't have any bites on your fly, you ask your neighbor downstream what he's using, or she, fisher people, so that you can choose the right one and have the fish rise and catch them. This is what legalism is like to us. We don't like to admit that. But as I've said to you recently, you don't have to cut us very deeply and we will bleed self-righteousness. We are lured toward, we are attracted toward contribution to justification and to maintaining rightness with God. And it just will do us well, it will do us better if we will admit it. We are, we are drawn to personal contribution to salvation. But because we have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection, the only one who can make us right with God, the only one who can rescue us, the only one who can bring God's smile toward us both now and for forever, we must not give in to the tempting lure of legalism. Let's read our verses for today. Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed, verse 23, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Now, we must admit that God has rules He wants us to keep, right? Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who have found salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are not freed to do whatever we want, right? We are not freed to murder. We are not freed to steal. We are not freed to lie. In fact, if we really understand the teachings of Jesus, in some ways, the institution of a new covenant, 
that we are rescued through Christ back to God, in some ways the Old Testament laws were amplified. Not only were we not to commit adultery, we were not to lust after another person in our hearts. Not only were we not allowed to steal, we were not allowed to do subtle things like defrauding another and not giving them the justice they deserve. Not only were we not to, to speak falsehood, we were not to shade the truth. Not only were we not to murder, we are not to be angry with our brother or sister long term. Jesus did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. We are to keep God's rules. But why? We talked about this last week with our kids during our children's sermon. Why are we to keep God's rules? Is it to earn His favor? Is it to maintain His favor? Is there a chance that we might be removed from from the role of the family if we do not keep the rules? Rule-keeping does not justify us. It does not make us right with God. Rule-keeping does not maintain a familial relationship with God. Rule-keeping, following God's laws, His precepts, is a response of grateful praise. It is what the justified person naturally should do. Now, certainly God is displeased when we do not keep His rules, but it has nothing to do with our maintaining familial relationships. In fact, as a bit of foreshadowing, as we will get to the end of our passage from today, in some senses, if we misuse the rules, if we don't use the law lawfully, we may actually make it worse in our fight against sin. More on that a bit later. There is a difference between preference and sacrosanct conviction. In other words, If you were to take a poll of the various families in our larger church family, we would have different family preferences. Pastor Rick brought up last week the issue of school choice. We have various families who have different various convictions about where their children should be educated, and that's fine. It's okay to have preferences. But there's a difference between preference and sacrosanct conviction. In other words, if you elevate your preference to the point that it becomes your pathway to righteousness, or it makes you better than your peers or families around you, then you have elevated your preference to a place it never should have gone. And that, my friends, is very dangerous. Paul, in this passage, is not saying that we should not keep the laws of God. Paul is not saying in this passage that we are not allowed to have some preferences. What he is saying is that when we keep the laws of God or follow our preferences, that we must not fall into the trap of believing that such preference or such obedience to God's laws somehow makes us right with God. Jesus is the only one who can make us right with God. We get an idea of this from the prophet in Isaiah chapter 1. God says to the prophet, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, this is uh, Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel, but he's likening them to Sodom and to Gomorrah, these very sinful nations in Old Testament history. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Boy, that is severe language. It is possible to get to the point that we believe that mere observance of the stipulations of God's law will make us right with God. Jesus had a description of this. When He spoke to the Pharisees, He said they were like whitewashed tombs. You ever go to a very attractive seminary, cemetery, and by attractive I don't mean that it's not sad and heartbreaking, but, but just from the standpoint of the aesthetics of the place, it's, it's beautiful, like Arlington. Some of you perhaps have been to Arlington Cemetery outside of Washington, D.C. You go there and it's, it's peaceful. Everything is arranged in such a way that you are in awe, particularly in such a cemetery where it honors those who have fallen in protection of our country. But even still, it covers up something that is sad and horrible, that because of the fall of humanity, we have died. And the truth of the matter is, it's possible to be just like that in our religious observances. We may on the outside have everything polished. We may, again, cross all our T's and dot all our I's and keep all the laws and perhaps even extra ones, but inside be full of decay. And that is what Isaiah says to the people of God in the 8th century B.C. And though we're 2,800 years beyond that, the truth of the matter is the problem persists to this day. Jesus picked up these similar thoughts in Mark 7. He said to them, then are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Externalism cannot heal our rotten hearts. Only Jesus can do that. When we adopted our two boys, our two younger boys from Ethiopia, we, at the very end, after about six weeks of being stuck there because of a lot of red tape, uh, had a chance to do a tiny bit of sightseeing. It's a picture that uh, Jim will put up on the screen behind me of a church. It's actually part of a monastery. This is one of the very holy places of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. There's probably not a church or a faith tradition in the Christian uh, tradition of, of history that is more legalistic than the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, somewhat similar to the uh, Egyptian Coptic Church, but even more legalistic. There are 180 days of fasting throughout the calendar year for the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. 
252 if you're clergy. You are forbidden on those either 180 or 252 days from romantic intimacy with your spouse. There will be no meals before 3 p.m., no animal products on those days, and no alcohol. And the stated purpose of these voluminous days of fasting is to chastise the body and bring it under subjection. Outside of this monastery up in the cliffs, there is a cave. The monk who founded this monastery was said to have stood up for 34 straight years, and in that cave, after a while, one of his legs fell off. I have a picture of it here on the screen as well. One of his legs fell off because Satan was trying to tempt him to give up, but he kept standing on his one leg for seven years. After Satan cut off his leg, God gave him six wings so he could fly back and forth to Jerusalem and find sustenance for his faith. Because of their tradition, they believe that from this cave, water drips from the ceiling, and they collect it in these barrels and little tubs that you see on the ground. You're able to hike up to this cave and take your shoes off and go inside. And people line up in long, hour-long queues or lines to receive a sip of this water because they believe that it will ward off evil spirits and heal them from their sickness. And as we came to this holy place in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, my heart broke because I saw people who came with mysterious speculation looking for external things to bring them hope and peace. And all it did was drive them further into themselves. Lest you think that this is something that's a problem in a foreign land far away, it is true here as well. Our land, our country, is full of faith traditions that will teach something like this. As I've already stated, Jesus is necessary, even essential for your being made right with God, but you need to add something to it. The observance of rules, faith traditions, sacred cows. Such speculation, such pursuit, never can bring peace. So I remind you, we have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Therefore, we must not give in to the tempting lure of legalism. But furthermore, to finish the sentence and the logic of the passage, we must not give in to the tempting lure of legalism because... Legalism cannot restrain our sinful cravings. This is the logic of Paul's words here in the passage. We have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Therefore, we must not give in to the tempting lure of legalism. Why? Because such legalism cannot restrain our sinful cravings. Paul, in a sense, throws down a bit of a gauntlet here. Paul, in a sense, subtly is saying, death to legalism. It may appear to be wise, as he says in verse 23. You might think it will bring you freedom from sin and God's smile, but it never can. In fact, perhaps even subtly, Paul may be suggesting that such legalistic pursuits may actually incite the flesh or excite the flesh to further exploration. Paul speaks here of the indulgence of the flesh. 
The truth of the matter is, we who live in this yet fallen world, even those of us who've been justified in Christ, reconciled to God, and are being made new from the inside out by the Spirit of God, even we still have cravings that are sinful. And it does us well just to be honest about it. But how do we deal with such cravings? Put another picture up for you. This is the Scala Sancta outside of the Vatican in Rome. These stairs were supposedly brought from Jerusalem to Rome in the 4th or 5th century. Supposedly, these stairs were the ones that Jesus climbed on His trial up to Pontius Pilate's palace. The pious are allowed to go up the stairs. Usually, they're covered in wood to protect them. They're marble but recently they were uncovered for restoration and the faithful were able to go up them one at a time on their knees, usually reciting a prayer on each step. Famously, Martin Luther did this back in the 16th century. Shortly before his conversion, while he was still yet a monk, he, from the Augustinian order, was allowed to go to Rome on business. And when he went there, he thought that he would find enlightenment. He would find the one true church in all of its glory, and it would bring him peace, for Luther had no peace. He constantly felt the wickedness from within, and no matter how much he tried, how much he prayed, how much he whipped himself and stayed up all night in his cold, dank cell, he could find no peace. So he thought, if I can go to Rome, the Holy See, I can find peace. And so he went to these stairs, one at a time, saying, and our Father, as he climbed them on his knees... He got to the top and he wondered inside of his own mind, does this make any difference at all? And as he looked around him and saw the spiritual immorality, which was worse in Rome even where he lived in Germany, it began a pursuit of something outside of himself, which eventually led him to Christ as his only hope for salvation. We are constantly looking for things to make us right with God. It's a natural question. Let me pose a few questions for you and give you some beginnings of answers that you can further explore. First of all, what is, and always has been, the role of the law in regard to justification? I encourage you to jot these passages down. We won't turn to them today. Perhaps you could spend some time meditating on them devotionally and uh, purposefully in the coming days. But Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 proclaims to us that the role of the law is to expose our sin. The law cannot deal with our sin, but it's useful, it's holy and righteous and good because it exposes our sin. In other words, we'll never know our need for the good news until we understand the bad news. Furthermore, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29, Paul further makes it plain that the law not only exposes our sin, It prepares us for Christ. This was the purpose of all the burnt offerings and the various civil ceremonies of the people of Israel. It was to prepare them for one who would atone for their sins because they were defiled due to their sin. So what is and what has always been the role of the law in regard to our justification? The law exposes our sin, points us to the promised Redeemer, who alone can justify and free us. So can the law justify and free us? And the answer is no. 
The law exposes our sin and points us outside of ourselves to a one who alone can do that. Here's another question. How does union with Christ change our relationship to the law? How does our union to the death and resurrection of Jesus change our relationship to the law? This law which exposes our sin and points us to Jesus as the Redeemer. Well, the verses we read together earlier that Marty led us through, Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, we are no longer condemned by it, but rather we are free to worship God in the power of the Spirit. So, we who formerly were under the condemnation of the law have now been freed from its condemnation, and we are freed to worship God in the power of the Spirit. So, can the law justify us? No. Can the law transform us and make us holy? No. Only God working through the Spirit can do this. One more question. How does union with Christ change our relationship to sin? This is what Romans chapter 6, particularly verses 1 through 14, are about. How does union with Christ, united to Him in death and resurrection, how does union with Christ change our relationship to sin? We have been freed from its tyranny. We were enslaved to it before. We have been freed from its tyranny in order that we might be restored to worship and enjoy God. So our union with Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection has changed our relationship to the law. I'm no longer under condemnation. And our union with Christ in death and resurrection has changed our relationship to sin. I'm no longer enslaved to it. Rather, I have been freed to worship God and enjoy Him forever. And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. What bearing does our union with Jesus in death and resurrection have to do with legalism? Paul says, death to legalism. We have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Therefore, one more time, we must not give in to the tempting lure of legalism because legalism cannot restrain our sinful cravings. Who can? Jesus can. We who have been united to Him in death and resurrection, He alone can, which is what Rick will deal with next week in verses 1 through 4 that we read earlier from chapter 3. We look to Jesus, the one who alone can justify us and the one who alone can transform us. We look to Jesus. One more picture today and we'll quit. This is a stylite. Probably not something you've thought of, maybe even ever. The monks of the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East, after Christianity began to spread, would go off into the desert from time to time and build towers, usually not quite as well put together as this one, and they would live up there, sometimes for decades at a time, denying themselves creature comforts. The point was to escape the world, do all they could to restrain the sinful cravings of the flesh thinking that by meditation and prayer, by avoiding seeing other people, they would avoid things like greed and lust and pride. But they just formed another kind of pride, thinking that somehow they could suspend themselves between God and man and earn His favor through self-denial. Probably none of us would do such a thing today. You would be considered a lunatic 
but do we not still have our own stylites? Church traditions that we have turned into sacred cows? Particular positions on certain holidays and how we observe them? Demands about political party affiliation? To get down into the more nitty-gritty of life, parenting pride? I am better than you because my kids perform and behave better than you because I've made these parenting decisions. Sometimes we isolate ourselves from the world thinking that if we can just sort of cloister, keep our proverbial wings around our children, that we can keep them from the problems of the world all the while the problem is actually underneath the wings because the problem comes from inside of us. Be careful. Is it fine to have family traditions or preferences? The answer is yes. Is it right and good to follow God's revealed laws? The answer is yes. But the problem will always be inside of us. And Jesus alone, Jesus alone can heal us from the inside out. So we, who have been united to Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, Let us look to Him and Him alone for life in the hereafter and life in the here and now. He alone can heal our hearts. He alone can restrain our sinful cravings. He alone can make us right and new. Let us look to Him and to Him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You drive us outside of ourselves, not to look within, not to find new ways to make ourselves acceptable to You and to others, but to look to You and You alone. We thank You, our Father, that through the Spirit You have united us to Christ in His death and resurrection. It counts for us through faith. It's nothing we've accomplished. It's nothing we've earned. We don't deserve it, but You have loved us with a great and unbreakable love. So may we not turn to another. May we not lift our hearts to other things, but rather may we look to Jesus, who alone can justify us, who alone can transform us. Jesus, please be faithful to us through your Spirit and do all those things in our minds and hearts which each of us need, we pray. In your name, amen.